just sit and talk, that it will be a good time of encouragement and refreshment and uh, maybe get some questions answered. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, what I do on Q&A night. Because invariably, someone will ask a question, I have to draw something. I have to label my stick figures. So, <laughs> my drawings aren't always that good. I received no questions early. I received a request to teach some stuff on prophecy. Um, questions? Do you all have any questions? Yes, Chloe. The Palestinian covenant, how it relates to the to the Abraham Abrahamic covenant. Palestinian uh, covenant has to do with just a certain piece of land. Uh, Abrahamic is a broader piece of land. Palestinian is a smaller piece of of land. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is supposed to go from the Euphrates River to the U- River of Egypt, which is. Uh, when I first taught it 40 years ago, I taught it that it was the Nile because it seemed to be, it's a Nahar is the word used there, uh, Ha-Nahar, the river of Egypt. And the way it was constructed, I thought, well, that's the Nile. That is the river of Egypt. But it's actually um, a wadi. A wadi is kind of like we see in Oklahoma. It's a dry stream, except during the... Um, except during the rainy season, then it gets water in it and flows through it. And so it is now known as the Wadi El Arish. So it really is not the Nile River. It's not going to Egypt. The Abrahamic Covenant's going to the southern part of, of um, Israel down there. So um, anyway, and the Palestinian Covenant's just a smaller piece of that that came with the Davidic Covenant that was given to the one that was given to David that comes out of 2 Samuel 7, if I remember right. So um, it's it's one of those. It's kind of like what's the difference between the new covenant to the church and the new covenant to Israel. And when you start digging into it, uh, you find out they're very similar to one another. Uh, I've got a good friend's a pastor that's Jewish. He thinks they're the same. He doesn't think they're, they're two separate covenants. Um, you know, I can, I can live with that. The Lord will sort it out in the millennium. So that's kind of, kind of what I'm, what I'm looking at there. Um, anything else? Yes. Keep going. Yes. Good. (laughs) When did it leave the temple? Uh, that is, uh, another good question. I would. I don't remember. I don't remember if it went before um, the Babylonian incursion, which I would think that it did, and that, and it basically would have been a picture of God removing His protective hand from Israel. Is that it? I think so, because um, Ezekiel is an exilic prophet, which means that he was, during the Babylonian exile from 586 to 516, 
he was a um, one of one of the prophets during that time. They'd label him as pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. They that's how they labeled the prophets. Uh, pre-exilic would be Isaiah and uh, Jonah and and that group. Exilic is Ezekiel, Daniel. Um, those are the two two prime Jeremiah. Those are the primary exilic uh, prophets. And so um, that would be, uh, um, I would almost say it had to, and it would be a, a real picture of, of to, to the Jews that our protection's gone because the Shekinah glory had protected them for a thousand years. <laughs> I mean, it just, wow, and the Lord left, that's, that's not a good idea. If if you're a Jew, you ought to maybe look about changing your life uh, some way. But that's that's a good question. The, the exile from 586 to 516. Uh, <clears throat> what what had happened before that was the northern kingdom uh, got beaten by the Assyrians, and that was about 705 BC that 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 occurred. And um, when the northern kingdom left, they they scattered to all parts of the earth. And one of the places they went, I was talking to people about that uh, actually yesterday. One of the places they went was to India. Because on the west coast of India, um, in a town called Cochin, which is uh, southern India, it's down getting it, I say it's close to the tip. If you look on the map, it's close to the tip. And um, it by car, it's about eight hours. <laughs> so it's still a long way if you're going to try to drive it. But they have, uh, <clears throat> I've been there three or four times. And they have a place called Jewtown. And they still have a functional synagogue in Jewtown. And <clears throat> we walked in there. And we started reading the history. I've got a book somewhere that uh, gives the history of that group that came. And they were they were Northern Kingdom Jews that came in the 400s B.C. And they set up and established that synagogue that's still operational. <clears throat> and I remember walking into it. And I, <clears throat> I got to look at it and I thought, this is a weird design. What is going on? And and you, you walked into the front portion of it, and then I started looking at dimensions, directions, everything else. It was laid out to the same dimensions as the tabernacle, and it had the width, length, height of the ceilings. It had in the in the center instead of. On the left, it had a lampstand. And the lampstand was where the rabbi taught from. And he could turn around and meet everybody on, in the room. And the chairs were lined up down the sides, not a, not across. They were lined up down the sides. So the congregants would sit there and the preacher would stand in the middle and uh, uh, read the Torah, whatever he's going to read. And then at the front of the room was a veil. And behind the veil, they actually had a replica of the ark back behind the veil. And they said, don't look behind the veil. So you better be careful <laughs> in another country before you start doing that. But uh, <clears throat> they, um, 
that was one group that was in Cochin that's where Thomas the Apostle landed and he went all the way across the southern end of the continent from the west coast to the east coast of India where he was martyred by a Hindu priest and he taught all the way across that southern area which I use as an illustration <coughs> to the Indian people there because they they think the gift of tongues is a you know supernatural prayer language and a little bit of everything else that, that goes on with that but I've tried to explain to them it is a known human language that people are blessed with not having to learn and I said how many languages are there between Cochin and Chennai which is on the east coast and they said probably 200 it's like the Tower of Babel, they went out and all the leftovers got sent to India. So only way I can explain it. But I, I asked the pastors, and they start, they start to get an idea then. How did Thomas go to all those villages to cross all the way across that subcontinent without learning those languages? How could he have possibly done that and evangelized without the supernatural gift? I said, that is a gift of languages. And so, <clears throat> anyway, it was fascinating. We went to another synagogue in uh, Mumbai, old Bombay area, farther up the west coast. And it was, they had uh, probably 20 people. We got there on, a, on Shabbat, on Sabbath day. And we, we went in the back and we tried to be as quiet as we could possibly be going in there. Uh, not realizing they were actually conducting services but one of the old guys came out and explained to us about what happened and and uh, it was a thriving Jewish population in in uh, Mumbai for hundreds of years and then when they went back to the land most of them left and went back there they sold everything they had and they moved back to Israel so that's a little bit of Jewish history that's often overlooked but the exilic prophets in 586 when they were carried off to Babylon not a lot of them escaped then but this northern kingdom managed to get there and plant a Jewish colony uh, called Jewtown and it was it was a lot of fun run mostly by Arabs <laughs> now they'd taken over you could buy a piece of Noah's Ark if you wanted to <laughs> It was, uh, I didn't buy. It was too big. <laughs> too uh, too big to get in the suitcase and get home. But they had some. They had some very interesting shops there. So I would say that it went out before 586. Okay. In Ezekiel 10, usually if it's talking about leaving in, in uh, increments, it's talking about an extended period of time. Yeah, that's usually what it's talking to talking about. So, anyway, it will be nice to see him come back. Bradford.
to that? Well, let me tell you a story because I don't think we don't have any record of Saul doing that. We don't have any record of David doing that or Solomon doing that. Solomon was probably taught it by his mother. Because he had a real good working grasp of the law. He just didn't obey it. It was his biggest problem. Don't accumulate horses, so I'll buy another herd. I mean, it was kind of a kind of like whatever it said to do he he, what he said don't do he did and don't accumulate wives to yourselves as a king so this is kind of crazy but the uh, it's an interesting thing the first time we actually have a record of a king reading the law is Hezekiah in 621 And in 621, there was a revival, if you will, in Israel. And with the 621 thing, um, have you heard of JEDP? Well, this is... This is the scholarly... And I put that in brackets, parenthesis, and everything else. This is what most of the liberal professors go by you actually find this if if you were to study hebrew and you get a hebrew lexicon and you open the thing up and you start looking at definitions of words then you'll find you'll find a, a word and then you'll have j put by it or you'll have a d put by it and what happened was they started denying that moses wrote the pentateuch which jesus said he did I mean, so when you, when the higher critical theory is what it's called, it rose up in the 1800s, and out of that came all the, the liberal theologians that um, turned everything upside down, really. They, they were allegorists. They were a little bit of everything. But they claimed that Moses really didn't write the Pentateuch. And so they broke the Pentateuch down into four divisions. And the first one are the Yahwist. And this was purely an arbitrary thing. But the, the Yahwist were the people that liked Yahweh, the word Yahweh, Jehovah. They were, and so all the verses you find in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible that have Jehovah in them, those are written by the Yahwist. And then the next group that came along were the Eloist. This is a group of people that liked Elohim. Now there's plenty of verses with Yahweh Elohim to be found in it, but these are these are verses that get added. They said that this happened about 950 BC, which actually goes past uh, right in the middle of Solomon. Solomon ruled from 970 to 930, and the Elohist they said they went back and added to the Hebrew text in. 850 B.C. They put all the E-verses in there. The Deuteronomist, that's the D, Deuteronomy, and these are Deuteronomists. This is all the stuff related to law. So everything that was related to law went in, they said, in 621. And they connect this 
to uh, the time when Hezekiah was brought the scrolls of the law by the priest. And, and it's recorded there. And he read the law and changed things overnight in the kingdom. He read it and we are messing everything up. And he went back and changed it. It was a great spiritual revival in the history of Israel. Here it is, southern kingdom. Northern kingdoms were already destroyed. In 705, they're destroyed, they're dispersed. Southern Kingdom is hanging on, and they have a revival in 621, because about 40 years later, in 586, is the Babylonians. They came in and, and overran the Jews and took them out. And so, the only one we've got a record of is Hezekiah. That actually, and he didn't write it down, it was brought to him, an old scroll. And then they said, well, they added it in 621 when the Bible says that the scrolls were brought to him. <laughs> okay? So he didn't add them. He just read them. <laughs> That's all he did. That's part of the preservation of the text. We'll see Satan would like nothing better than to destroy the authenticity of the text that we have for the Old Testament, because then you destroy the historicity of the Bible. When you destroy the historicity, people say, why should I bother? Why should I bother? If it's all a myth, which is what the Internet claims right now, it's all a myth. So if they think it's all a myth, they're not going to follow it. The P is the priestly code. And all the Leviticus, all the stuff in Exodus about the priest and how they function, the high priest, the the underling priests that were there this was all added by Ezra Nehemiah about 450 BC and this is called JEDP theory and this took over the seminaries in the mid 1800s literally did and you'll you'll still find that if you were to go to Princeton Theological Seminary now that's what you'd be taught Now that's that's been around for a long time. Um, they the there's been multiple arguments uh, about it being uh, the line of Cain actually, and and uh, um, that Seth was supposed to be the godly line, which would not have been. But the the <clears throat> intermingling uh, to me it's clear as a the bell. They're talking about angels that are there. I've just been. Um, I'm about to get Second Peter ready to put up with the other books that we've that we've got put up. I've been going back through it. I'm ready for a final pass through it. And in Second Peter two, it talks about the angels being being thrown into pits of darkness reserved for judgment for that for that day. And it's talking. Those are the angels it's talking about. Okay. And so sometimes people I've seen this. I saw it last week at the conference down there the when you're studying context there's the immediate context there's the intermediate context and there's a remote context now i believe the bible is a is a unified whole there are no contradictions 
with it at all. And the immediate context is what's established by the grammar. How's the grammar? What does it say? Is it a perfect tense? Is you know, if you're Old Testament, is it a cal, a pl? What type of what type of of word is it? And what does the word literally mean? And so that's the immediate context, and that's what we study. We study it verse by verse. Isaiah 28:10, line on line, precept. We study it verse by verse, so we can get an immediate context. Intermediate. <coughs> means that it's within the same book. Or you could extend that to say this is done by the same writer. Um, is it like the Apostle Paul? All of his 13 epistles, in a sense, are intermediate context. Okay, as to anything he writes, there's intermediate context. And then the remote context is what's found in the rest of the Bible. And my argument has been for a long time, all three have to agree if you have the right interpretation. Because the Bible is inherently coherent because it was inspired of God himself. So there are no contradictions with it. There simply <clears throat> has to, we have to refine our thinking. Um, one of the big things at the conference last week was uh, there's supposed to be 430 years between um, between from the time that the Jews walked into Egypt till the time they walked out. That's that's what it says in Exodus 12:40. Now, <clears throat> in Galatians 3:17, done by Paul, a definite Old Testament scholar, he says from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law was 430 years. Promise to Abraham is long before they went into Egypt. So which one is right? And immediate context, if you stayed with Exodus 1240, you have to establish that the giving of the law, you go back 430 years, and that's when Jacob and that group went into Egypt. Okay, <clears throat> but that throws a lot of stuff off in a, for a lot of different reasons. I'm, I'm not going to go into now, but it, it throws it off. But what I see Paul doing under the inspiration of the Spirit is interpreting that. It's actually from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law was 430 years, and their actual sojourn in Egypt is 215 years. And I can put together remote context to offer great evidence for that. But if all you looked at was Exodus 12:40, without having another context, and by the way, there are textual variations that say their time in Canaan and the time in Egypt was 430 years. There are textual variants that say that, but <clears throat> the uh, and they're not the strongest evidence, honestly. But there are variants that that recognize that fact. So <clears throat> this remote context. Galatians 3.17 interprets Exodus 12.40 to me. And it's not really a big problem to do that. If I'm, I'm a chronology freak, so if I get started on that, we won't do anything else tonight. But anyway, the um, these three things have to agree. And that's why... Um, one of the most valuable things that came out of our, our background 
was the importance of comparison of Scripture with Scripture. And you let Scripture interpret itself. And you study it isagogically, historically, where is it found? Categorically means you compare the Scriptures with the Scriptures. And exegetically means that you look at the original languages. What do they have to say? And so <clears throat> that was called ice. We were all ice believers. Ice is a hermeneutic. See, that's what it is. It's how do you interpret Scripture? This is how we go about doing it. Uh, if you look back in history, it's not new. It was not invented by R.B. Theme or anybody else. It was not new. It comes from what's called the historical, grammatical, and literal school of interpretation that's been around since Moses <laughs> I mean, literally he thought the flood was literal he thought Adam and Eve were literal and you can tell that by the way he wrote so anyway <clears throat> but this is now that I've got down that rabbit trail I'm not sure what got us to look at the rabbit trail after all no, that's fine. I, I like to talk prophecy. I like to talk chronology. Uh, I think the Bible is totally accurate. Chronology is one of the biggest attacks that has been um, been made on the Scripture. Um, is there is there another question? While I'm erasing this, huh? Masoretic. Masoretic. It has Dead Sea Scrolls as revealed a uh, treasure trove of good good stuff. Um, they've got complete texts of the Old Testament uh, out, of, out of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The uh, New Testament hadn't been written, of course, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were completed and done. They they have they have it's what is called textual criticism. There are people that devoted their lives to it. Uh, Bruce Metzger being one of them. Uh, several Dallas professors, and they they use. It depends on whether we're talking Hebrew or Greek. Okay, so Hebrew, <coughs> the Masoretic text. Then there was the Samaritan text, and there was the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And those were a big part of what our conference was about last week. Now, <clears throat> I, I lean to the Masoretic. All the translations of the Bible that we have are translated out of the Masoretic text. Okay, if you want to find another translation, you have to go to these directly. You can't find any, you know, whether it comes out of, out of the King James, New American Standard, etc., etc. 
then they they come out of the Masoretic text. Okay. Now, <clears throat> are there variations? And the answer is there are some. Uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint both were infamous for messing with the numbers. So if you're doing anything with chronology, you have to be exceedingly careful about about <laughs> quoting the Septuagint and saying, I believe it's this. I'll give you an example. It says, um, in the uh, and Seth lived 30 years and he begat Canaan or whatever it was. Septuagint says Seth lived 130 years and then he begat. And it does the same thing on down through that line of Old Testament patriarchs uh, leading up to the flood. It adds 100 years to all of them in the Septuagint. Now what does that do when you get 10, 10 patriarchs? It adds 1,000 years to the chronology. And what it does is make the creation of Adam and the fall of Adam, it takes it back another 5,000 years. So according, or another uh, 1,600, according to the Septuagint, then Adam was created about 5,600 B.C. instead of around 4,000. So, do I take the Septuagint? I don't think so. Because they don't have the Hebrew text the Septuagint was translated from. So I'm wondering why. And uh, my argument for why, and some scholars, they just kind of take the ones they like the best that fits their model, quite honestly. And that's, I don't think, the way we should do it. We were taught, (laughs) Masoretic text is so close because it it was put together, it's been compared, the, the Pentateuch, they know all but six letters of the Pentateuch for certain as to, as to what they are. And that the differences, this is a yod, this is a wow. Okay, this is a bait, this is a cop. You talk about every jot and tittle, these are handwritten. What if the scribe <laughs> made that yod too long or that wow too short? <laughs> it's going to be hard to tell what it is and the same thing this is a B and see that little gizmo right there that's what delineates this from a cough which is a K and it's every jot and tittle and when you're doing it by hand try to do that by hand sometimes. <laughs> golly going right to left of course that's the way they learned how to do it but the <clears throat> Uh, the Masoretic text to me has has the, the most evidence. They're trying to push these longer dates. <clears throat> and part of the reason they did that, I believe, because when you, when you do the biblical chronology out of the Masoretic text, from Adam... To the flood was 1656 years. That's what it adds up. That's the numbers in the in the Bibles that we have. From Adam to the flood, 1656 years. A year for the flood, 370 days actually, 
And then if you take from the flood to Abraham, it's 352 years. Roughly 2,008 years from Adam to Abraham, the birth of Abraham. Now, by working it forward as we should, Abraham's here, then we get Galatians 3.17, promise to Abraham the giving of the law is 430 years. Well, the promise to Abraham happened when he was 75. We know that from Genesis 11 and 12. So he was 75. How long did he live? 175 years. <clears throat> so we're able to, to date Abraham. And the way this all works is you date going forward from Adam until you get to a certain point. And this certain point is called the fourth year of Solomon. So <clears throat> from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law is 430 years. So coming on forward plus another 100 well, we add 430 years here. 430 years. And what does that take us? 13, 1, 5, 2,513 years. And then it says in 1 Kings 6, 1, from the leaving of Egypt to the fourth year of Solomon was 480 years. Okay, so you put 480 years on this. 3, 9, 29, 93. From Adam to the fourth year of Solomon. Now, we're able to date the fourth year of Solomon with a high level of accuracy. And the way we're able to date that level, that fourth year of Solomon, is that there were... There there were, Pope Gregory asked or commissioned a whole group of monks and they were to go through and connect the dots with uh, ancient civilizations and date everything in accordance with Christ's birth. Okay? So that's where we get A.D. and B.C. And that wasn't done until 586 A.D. So it's called a Gregorian calendar. And that's where we get A.D. and B.C. from. And they're able to go back and they can connect the dots with Alexander. They can connect the dots with Persia and Artaxerxes and the rulers of Persia. They do the same thing with the Babylonians. So they've got all those ancient civilizations that had interactions with each other. They're able to date, date it with the <clears throat> uh, Assyrians. As if you go through and read Kings, you find, and in the fourth year of Shalmaneser and the twelfth year of Hezekiah, they fought. Well, for chronology nuts, that's a gold mine. <laughs> I mean, you're fine. When did this guy rule? When did this guy rule? And you're, that's how they constructed this ancient history. And they came up with the fourth year of Solomon, about 966 to 965 B.C., and that's because it was an overlap of years. It wasn't January to January, or September to September, etc. So that's why they, they, and they came up with, with that date. Now the conference last week, they had the same date. <clears throat> they had the same date for the Exodus, 1445 B.C. 
But from there back, it went funny <laughs> and got haywire. Well, <clears throat> when you when you put these put these all together, you find out that from well from here is uh, Abraham, 2008 years roughly after the the fall of Adam. And when you put all the dates together, you find Abraham was born about 1950 B.C. So from the time of the birth of Abraham to the birth of Messiah was about 1950 years. From the, birth, from the fall of Adam to the birth of Abraham, 2008 years roughly. Abraham to uh, birth of Messiah, 1950 years roughly. Israel back in the land... 1950 years to me it's it's a very clear structured pattern of the way God does stuff and I've got uh, there's other verses I could go to um, that would uh, and and as we go through second Peter we will go through those but there are other verses we can go to that that show that uh, that's not a wild-eyed assumption that's made uh, Hosea 6.2 says that I'm going to send you out and after after two days I'll bring you back. When did he bring him back? About 2,000 years later. <laughs> it wasn't 24 hours later. <laughs> it was about, 2000, about 1948 years from 70 A.D. When, when the prophecy gets fulfilled until 1948. It's, it's a pretty close time frame that's found in there. But chronology is so very important because the Jews are found in the history of other people and they, they're trying to explain them. One of the things they try to do that they're constantly trying to do is think that somehow the chronology of Egypt is just as inspired as the Bible. Now, that part drives me crazy. And that's why I keep thinking they're trying to, they are trying to stretch the time because biblically the flood happened about 2300 B.C. Biblically, within a few years, that's, a, that's the flood, around 2300 B.C. 2304 actually is what my calculations are. First dynasty, the first king of Egypt, according to conventional chronology, 3000 BC. Now, what do you do if you're a kid and you're looking it up and you got some crazy person in Sunday school telling you the flood's 2300 BC? You even have um, uh, answers in Genesis and some of the other people thinking there's all kinds of gaps in the genealogies that's there, and they'll say that the flood probably happened around 10,000 BC. And they're compromising with modern day archaeologies, what they're doing. And they, if, if you accept 3000 BC as the first king of the first dynasty of Egypt, then you either ha you have a local flood, that not whole the world was flood, just like it describes as clearly as you can describe it. You, you've got, or you've got Egypt preceding the flood. Now, when did Egypt take place? You go through Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, you find a guy named 
Mitzrayim. That, strangely enough, one of the grandsons of Noah, is the is the name for Egypt. Mitzrayim is the name for Egypt. That's what you find all the way through the Bible. Mitzrayim is the name for Egypt. First king, the first dynasty of Egypt, is named Menes. Mishraim or Mitzraim. Each king had five different names, so it's not a it's not rocket science to see that they're talking about Noah's grandson, who was the first king of the first dynasty of Egypt. Okay, <clears throat> that means that he had to come out, experience the Tower of Babel. And experienced the apostasy that went there. He went from there to Egypt. And down in Egypt he started the Egyptian dynasties is what happened. Now <clears throat> I was uh, I usually don't ask questions down in those conferences. But I was doing my best to get a question in to this guy. Because I wanted to ask him where do you put... The flood, give me a date for the flood and give me a date for the first dynasty of Egypt. Because they said they pretty well accept the conventional chronology of Egypt. Now, we we spent way too long, in my estimation, when I was in seminary at Tulsa Seminary, and, and uh, Glenn Carnegie spent, took a year and a half, three semesters, we went doing chronology. And we went to a guy named Donovan Corville, who we used to laugh about because he was dry as toast when he wrote two volumes of, of Egyptian history that will absolutely put you to sleep if nothing else on the planet will. He was a marine biologist. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. And one of the interesting things about them, they are highly literal people. And so it's kind of like the Masoretes. The Masoretes were weirdos. But they were responsible for putting the text together. Because they they thought, well, I could take Bara, oh, second letter of the alphabet, Resh, which is about the 19th letter, and uh, Aleph, which is the first letter. I can add those three together, I get 21. That's three times seven. So therefore, it's the, the divinity of perfection, three times expressed in Bara. And so they they it's called numerology. They, they used it, and they allegorized stuff. But they saw the value in every letter. So God says, okay, I can use you. <laughs> they counted all those letters. They knew they knew that how many letters was in any book. They knew what the middle letter was. They had marker points along the way. So whenever they made a, a copy of the text, it was handed off to another Masoret who went through and checked it. And frequently, it would go through two or three of them. That's the way they did it. That's how the Masoretic text was done. As I mentioned Sunday, the earliest full manuscript to the Masoretic text that we have is um, 1000 A.D. So it's a relatively late copy. But the Isaiah scroll, they found a full scroll of Isaiah in the Dead Sea, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 B.C., and it was a 95% overlap. That's incredible. 
It's God's preservation of the text. And so I would wonder, why would they mess up the numbers? <laughs> well, I don't think they did. I think the Masoretic text had, had the ones that were actually done. But the, the way that you explain this, the way that you explain this is that the Egyptian king list was assumed to be consecutive. Like Dynasty 1 got done, followed by Dynasty 2, followed by Dynasty 3. You, you assume a consecutive uh, flow of dynasties. Well, Kerrville did a brilliant job of showing, although dry, it was a brilliant job of saying, here's the Nile, and there are five main cities on the Nile, which is uh, Delta, uh, Alexandria, Elephantine, I don't remember the exact, there are five main cities on, on the Nile, I don't remember all the, the names right off the top of my head. But he said that basically the dynasties rule from different cities. And they were consecutive from those cities. But they could also be contemporaneous. So you could have Dynasty 1 being and Dynasty 2 ruling at the same time from different places. And he worked out a chronology that that I thought was just great. He worked out a chronology that was based on on those premises, and you know he he showed Dynasty one, two, and six actually had some overlap, uh, and he worked this all the way through. The book is the Exodus problem and its ramifications. You can't really find it anywhere anymore, but. <clears throat> um, it is a, um, one of the things he found <laughs> was three triplets, three brothers. Conventional chronology says the oldest triplet ruled for 80 years. And then number two triplet took over, and he ruled another 80 years. And then number three triplet took over, and he ruled another 80 years. Now, that doesn't make sense to anybody. <laughs> But when you let them rule from different places in Egypt, which is a security issue, where are the enemies coming from? Now, three of them ruling 80 years in three different places in Egypt, that makes sense. But you also shrunk the chronology 160 years with that one, one observation. And so they continually try to put... Um, put the exodus in the 18th dynasty of Egypt. And um, they were actually trying to, to justify that Pharaoh was not drowned in the, in the Red Sea, just like Yul Brenner made it through the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. The, they did that because we have every mummy of the 18th dynasty. All been accounted for. All the kings, we got the mummy for them. And the 19th dynasty. So, <clears throat> they had to say, well, there he was. But in the ancient world, <laughs> if a king said, 
charge and he didn't lead the charge, nobody's going to go. <laughs> that was just that's the way they were. So he had to go in there, although you won't find Pharaoh singled out in the immediate context. It It is historically the way things happen. It's what you would expect to happen. And the destruction, the description of the destruction is total and complete. Now here's the entire army, which was estimated to be a million people that went after the Jews. Here's an entire army that is wiped out of Egypt. So wouldn't you expect to find an Egyptian annals somewhere a time in which the military was totally destroyed and the economy was totally destroyed because the Jews carried it all out with them. How did they come up with 75 pounds of gold to build a lampstand? And by the way, if there's only a couple dozen people that went, like the liberals that have you think, how'd they carry all that stuff to put together the tabernacle? I mean, it, it, that's why they say, well, it's all a big mythological story. That's because they won't take the time to say, no, this is, this is possible. This is, this is what happened. So that's, that's the way that Egyptian chronology is shrunk where it will, will, will actually start after the Tower of Babel like the Bible reveals. It did. <clears throat> there are other great empires of that time. Uh, uh, Sumer which is the land between the Tigris-Euphrates River. They also had another long chronology that took it back pre-flood and all that. This is why if you're just a student going into college and you see all this and you got the flood dated from something in, in church and then you see all these civilizations going back pre-flood, then you start questioning the Bible to begin with. But there are explanations, but they've hit them quite well. Sumer was one of the projects I did in um, seminary was to take the uh, king list of Sumer <clears throat> and see how they fit in line with the uh, chronology. Whenever they did that, they uh, the ancient history is basically 800 years off. Not just a that's just a ball game figure. And you can thank Kathleen Kenyon for doing that when she excavated Jericho. Yes? Is there a physical location of the Masoretic Bound versus Bound of Is it in a museum or is it, is it... I, I, I'm sure, but I'm not sure where. <clears throat> it could be very well in the Vatican. Uh, one of the, there's a, uh, uh, one of the manuscripts. <laughs> so one of these interesting stories. One of the manuscripts uh, was in uh, Russia. And the Russians wouldn't let anybody go in and copy or do anything. And there was a guy who went in for years. And all he did was memorize what was in that manuscript and come home at night and copy it down, write it down. Did the whole manuscript. Uh, Stuttgart Insia is the uh, uh, Masoretic one that we use. Um, it's the common one. And <clears throat> when there's a variation of text in other manuscripts, 
the Masoretic text notes it, uh, as well as in the New Testament. The New Testament has basically the majority text, which is what uh, your King James is based off of. They call it the majority text. And the other one is a critical text. And I use primarily the critical text because, uh, and that's where the New American Standard comes from. There's not that much difference, okay? But there's enough to, to make a difference. Just like John chapter 8, um, the stoning of the woman, and uh, it's not found in any early manuscripts. Mark 16, verse 9 and following with the snake handlers and all that other stuff. Not found in any early manuscripts. It's not found until the King James was getting ready to be written. And then the stuff gets added in. John 8, they suspect, had something to do with the king trying to get a divorce and the Anglican church wouldn't let him get it. So why not put in there, he among you who's without sin cast the first stone. Uh, <clears throat> Mark 16:9. There's three different endings from there, from 16:9 on. You, one of the things you're taught, you don't build a doctrine on an uncertain text. And the snake handlers and all that stuff that Tennessee that get bitten and die every year. Guess where they get their text from? And it's sad that poor hermeneutics kills people, but. <laughs> one of the examples that it does um, I use the <clears throat> the critical text what's called the Nestle Allen text and if there's a variant it marks it in the text the variations are put in the bottom part of it and if it's off by a letter they'll note it and they'll tell you what text it's in but if I'm looking for something and I cannot find it in any early text then I wonder how it got in a text of the 1600s. So I question it seriously. And that's 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 kind of my hermeneutic on how do you how do you pick what's really the text and what's not the text. So Jordan. Well Pharisees in Jesus' day would have been grounded in the scriptures. Yeah. They did. <clears throat> they did. See, they had the they had the uh, most of them were functioning off the Septuagint translation because they were some of them knew Hebrew. Paul knew Hebrew. He was able to speak in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's pretty obvious. But some of but the uh, uh, they had the uh, Septuagint and. They also, by the time of Christ, they became too literal on the figurative stuff and too figurative on the literal stuff. <laughs> it's just what happened because they became allegorists. They became allegorists for the most part, and you know, they uh, we had we had some excellent classes on Qumran from a guy that had actually done excavations there at Qumran and and um, you know talked to the talked to the shepherd that actually found the the caves and stuff and interviewed him so we had um, 
a guy there, Daniel Price, Ronald Price, that that um, uh, pretty credible on a lot of stuff. But if if they want to publish, they have to go with what conventional wisdom says, and it's really hard to step out and say I don't agree with you because <clears throat> Dynasty 18. Not only were do we have all the pharaohs, it's one of the strongest dynasties in the history of Egypt. No, no burps, no burps economically, militarily, and uh, Courville said, "Here's where it had to happen: the end of Dynasty 13, because Dynasty 14 through 17 were what's called the Hyksos, the Shepherd Kings, and he believes, and I believe." that it was the Amalekites. The Amalekites that met the Jews coming out of Egypt, and what did they do? They went, oh gosh, Egypt, we got a country all to ourselves. So for for about 400 years until the Battle of Sharuan, when Saul won the battle and gave Egypt back to the Egyptians. That's what actually, what actually happened. And that was a bunch of shepherd kings that had... <laughs> What dynasties they have, nobody's sure. It was just dynasties 14 to 17 in Egypt. Not primarily Egyptian, but a bunch of uh, uh, shepherd kings is what they what they called them. They were a walking disaster area. So, any other questions? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I think I think the Magi, based on what it says about him, that they they saw his star, they followed his star, and <clears throat> they probably been, you know, told uh, uh, the king. There, we've been following this for eight months, six, eight months, a year, whatever. And in order to be uh, safe, he wanted everybody under two years old killed. Well, the the uh, you know last time I went through this and studied it, I reached the conclusion that it is um, it was a Shekinah glory. I think the star was a Shekinah glory because it did things stars don't do. Stars don't stop, <laughs> come to one place and stop, and yet the Shekinah glory. Exactly, that's exactly what it did. Whenever it's time to move, it picked up and moved, and the Jews followed it. I mean, you know, that's what happened. So it appears that it was the Shekinah glory that settled over that place, and that was that was what showed them. That's what stopped. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, that's just my thoughts. Anything else? I always enjoy doing this. What would you like to study as a topic? We were doing uh, tabernacle, priesthood, 
Uh, I can pick that back up. Uh, <clears throat> Linda wanted to do some prophecy. Uh, I can always do prophecy, but I've been doing prophecy for several years, so some people might be. <laughs> uh, but. How did they function? Let's go for it then. We'll go right back into that. And then um, uh, take the prophecy book and read it again. <laughs> and it's all on tape on on uh, the deal, huh? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's all I said on tape. I'm dating myself. <laughs> Okay, let's pray. Father, it's a good day. We've been able to get together and talk about you and talk about your plan and talk about the intricacy of it and just the structure of it. We thank you for it. We pray that, uh, Father, what we gleaned here tonight will encourage us, keep us uh, with our eyes fixed on you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.